If you went to the Alamo Draft House in my neighborhood right now, you would see a picture of stasis. It's not open. If you were to walk by and look through its closed doors, you'd see showtimes listed for movies like The Call of the Wild, that dog movie with Harrison Ford back at the beginning of the year, and, and Parasite, last year's Best Picture winner. Looking through the glass is like looking at a museum where late February and early March of 2020 are perfectly preserved, like a tomb even. It's a picture of a world in stasis. Our reading this morning from 2 Peter chapter 3 is written into a similar feeling kind of situation. The letter, of which our reading is the closing lines, was written to Christians who felt or were tempted to feel as the life and the world were stuck in neutral. They were not going to turn, as we just sang. Where the promises of God, and specifically the promise of Christ's return, his return to set things right, was getting more and more difficult to believe. Just before our reading, the writer gives voice to this, asking, where is the coming he promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on and on as it has since the beginning. Nothing changes. No promise to be fulfilled. He is not coming. This season of Advent, of course, invites us into this tension, into the very teeth of this question. The season is intended to remind us that we are a people in waiting for something more, for something better, waiting in the hope that Christ will come again, as we say each Sunday. Beyond that cosmic promise, in our individual daily lives, many of us also are people in waiting. This season is meant to direct our attention as well to Christ's daily coming, his advent in our lives. In addition to preparing for Christmas, longing for his second coming, this week, these weeks are about cultivating attention for the daily arrival of Jesus. But here too, on this daily level, this everyday level, we might ask, where's the promise of his coming? We've been doing pastoral visits in the last few weeks and connecting with many of you about your experience during the pandemic. And this feature of our pandemic experience, of life being on hold, of even being stuck far from God, absent of any sense of him meeting us, is one that many of us share in. Beyond the experience of the pandemic, some of us can identify with it even. We're waiting for something, for a change in job situation, for a, a shift in relationship, for the life that we felt was promised us, for the full life Jesus assures. And perhaps in that waiting, we are increasingly unsure, skeptical, scoffing that something better is coming. Perhaps we'd say life doesn't feel too short, but rather too long, too boring, too unchanging. There's that old talking head song, Once in a Lifetime. The days go by, how did I get here? Same as it ever was, same as it ever was. What might the gospel say to such a human experience? to the challenge of waiting, the absence of his advent, both cosmically and daily. 
This morning, I think our reading from 2 Peter 3 offers a word of hope, a word of clarity, and a call to action. I'd like to kind of organize our time, our remaining time this morning, around two headings. The context of God's patience, first, and then second, the threat of his goodness. God's patience and God's threatening goodness. And then finally, we'll close with a couple of implications for us. So first, the the context of God's patience. Our experience of time is, of course, relative. Anyone who's ever driven some distance with a child, with a toddler, or been driven some distance as a child or toddler knows this, right? Are we there yet? You just asked that 10 seconds ago. You said we would be there yet. You're like, that was five minutes ago. It's a five-hour drive. That kind of experience. And our reading opens with a similar assertion about the relative experience of time, comparing our experience, our perspective, with that of God's. And what feels like ages to us, an interminable wait, are we there yet? Is for him, the writer says, just the blink of an eye. He sees time differently. Precisely what God's relation to time is, is something of a mystery puzzled over by theologians and philosophers? Is God in time? Is he outside of time? Is he present to all of time as one eternal now? You'll have to take it up with one of our resident philosophers or theologians. But for our purpose this morning, the point is simply that God sees things differently. And the delay of his advent is in some ways no big deal from his perspective even as we struggle on the precipice of skepticism and uncertainty. It's kind of cold comfort. But more than this direct, different perspective on time, what the writer seems to want his hearers, want us to focus on, is the motivation behind what we experience as a delay. The character of the one that we perceive to be slow. Two times in our reading, the quality of God's patience is mentioned. His long-suffering, his forbearance for you, the writer specifies. God's patience is not a virtue I think we readily think of. We highlight perhaps his love, his power, his omnipotence and omnipresence. But the writer here is conscious to stress the quality of patience. We wait We live, we move in time in the context of God's great patience. His first response, his first reaction to our failure, to our sin, to our brokenness is not judgment, is not anger. It is patience. When we're waiting for something, I don't think this is quite where our minds first go. In my neighborhood, again, during this season, these weeks, as you might expect, there's plenty of Amazon packages being delivered. And when a package is delayed, when it doesn't appear, when it's supposed to appear, when we expect it, most of us in the neighborhood would assume, well, it's been stolen, right? It's not altogether unlikely. We don't assume that Jeff Bezos is feeling particularly patient, that the executives at Amazon have qualities of forbearance that are being put into action. We assume the worst. I think in the same way, when we're waiting upon God, if you're anything like me, you're prone 
to assume the worst. Slowness in an answer to prayer, slowness in some promise to be fulfilled, suggests to me a reluctance, a dragging of the feet at best, perhaps total abandonment, non-existence at the worst. When we're waiting, it suggests reluctance or perhaps dissatisfaction or anger. I don't have what I desire because God is angry with me. I'm not experiencing the fullness of what Jesus promised because I've fallen short and God's dissatisfied. He's withholding. He's punishing. This is so often our reflexive response to assume the worst in our waiting. And I think this is why the writer is here at pains to implore his hearers, to implore us to not forget. Time is different for God, and his character is better than you think. Slowness for him is not anger or reluctance, but divine patience on display. Your days, your life, they unfold in the context of God's patience for you. And that patience is directed to a specific and merciful end, right? That all might come to repentance. That all might not perish. God's heart, his desire for the nations is on display here. For people who don't yet know him to come to know him. It's embedded in these words. He's slow, as it seems to us, because he wants more people in history on the earth among the nations, to find life in him. This is the impulse that has animated missionary efforts by Christians throughout the centuries, sharing in God's wish, God's desire. And it animates them today, right? Missionaries from Korea, from Brazil, from Uganda, going to the nations that none might perish. But notice again, it's patience with you, with Christians, with the church that's named here. That's the context of our lives, for us, for our repentance. What 2 Peter chapter 3 seems to be teaching us is that our waiting, our waiting upon God in terms of unanswered longings and prayers in the cosmic terms of his second coming, all of that waiting can be is an opportunity to be brought more and more into alignment with him, to be made more and more alive in him. The time before Christ's coming, the time of waiting, is time to become more and more like him. Repentance, thinking again in light of the gospel, is not this one-time activity. There may be this moment of decision, this conversion, our baptism. But every moment after that is a continued opportunity in God's patience, in his mercy, to be brought into alignment with him, his new creation. Not as a way of measuring up, but as a, a context of his patience, as a way of becoming who we were made to be. It's not dead and useless time. These last couple weeks, I had a, not a very significant, but a minor kind of like health scare. Basically, there were some symptoms, and then they took my blood, and they're like, oh, there's some like, concerning things in your lab results and that sort of thing. And kind of disappointingly for all like, the like, uh, rigmarole and stress of the moment, they were like, well, what you need to do is you just need to go home and wait, drink lots of fluids, and chill. And it was kind of like, oh, seriously, that's it? 
And then they took more labs and levels and stuff like that, and everything turned out all right. But that instruction to wait wasn't just an instruction to like dead time, right? An invitation to just sit there. It was an invitation to let your body do what it's supposed to do, right? The process of healing, of working through this issue. It's not dead time. In this Advent season, the whole of our days lived out waiting for Christ is not dead time. But each moment, each day, in light of God's mercy and patience, is alive with possibility. The possibility of becoming more like him, more of who you were made to be. The world is not in stasis any more than the human body is in stasis during pregnancy or convalescence any more than the garden soil is static as it's watered and fertilized. Our lives, our times might similarly be made generative, verdant, fruitful, alive to God's good purposes and plans. We live in the context of his patience. The second thing I want to talk about is probably where your mind was fixed, as you heard 2 Peter chapter 3 read. That's this sense of threat, this foreboding language. Our reading depicts in stark terms this fiery end, the heavens and the earth. A writer, Flannery O'Connor, once remarked, to the hard of hearing you shout, and for the almost blind you draw large and startling figures, right? Get their attention. And this is what the writer is doing here. The vivid descriptions of judgment, the heavens and earth, the elements of the earth dissolved, melted away, disappearing with a roar. They're meant to make real the coming of this day, the day of the Lord, something that's easily ignored or forgotten as we wait. Yet the picture painted here is not the equivalent of a divine nuclear bomb or even a forest fire sent by God. Those kinds of images are far too impersonal. What the passage promises, what we're waiting for, what we wait for this Advent is something much more personal. It's the coming of Jesus. It's the drawing near of God himself, who is a consuming fire, as the writer of Hebrews puts it. This association between God himself, his very presence, and fire can help us understand what the writer is describing here, the terrifying reality. God's intention is not the napalming of his creation in this long-delayed outburst of anger. God's intention is a recreated heavens and earth in which righteousness, justice dwells, as our reading puts it, in which he, in his holiness, resides. And that holiness is expressed in Scripture, of course, as a fire, right? The burning bush, the fiery pillar in the wilderness, the blazing glory of God's presence in the temple. His Son is the light of the world, the world's holy torch. And the presence of His Spirit is announced by tongues of flame. God is this holy, consuming fire, and He will be present to His creation. Another word for holiness is simply goodness. Goodness on steroids. And the picture in Scripture is that God is so purely and powerfully good 
that he is like this blazing furnace, so powerfully good that his mere presence is destructive to that, that which is not good, to that which is unjust and evil. By his mere presence, God makes holy and eradicates what is not holy. What 2 Peter promises, what we are waiting for this Advent, is the presence of this holy God. And his arrival means that holiness, that goodness, will envelop all of creation. And that's good, that's wonderful, that's beautiful, and it is profoundly threatening. Because the injustice and evil of this world will not survive that encounter. And it's threatening because there's injustice and evil in me. There's injustice and evil in you. And the promises of his coming is the promise that all that is opposed to God's pleasing and good purposes, all that's opposed to the flourishing of his creation, to the flourishing of those who bear his image, even when it's chosen by them, will be dissolved, will be laid bare. And by God's hand, God's presence at long last, a new heavens, a new earth will be. That language of exposure, of being laid bare, is what one writer calls the language of judicial inquiry, right? Like the light is brought near, the presence of God, the light of the world is drawn near, and what's been done in the dark is exposed. We, we see things for what they are. We'll see what's what. A few years ago, I was driving down 183, and there was this car about 250 yards ahead, driving really erratically. And this is like, this is totally true. This was bizarre. As it's 250 yards ahead of me, I had the distinct thought driving in my Mazda 5. I was like, that car is going to hit me. And I, sure enough, I'm like the son of a prophet or something like that. I was driving down the center lane and this car careened into my lane and hit the front of my vehicle and then sped off around the corner. And I was like, oh, it's on. My Mazda 5, 2006, made for this, made for the high-speed chase. And seriously, I drove past it. This was like the most exciting thing that happened to me in like a decade of life. Um, and I kind of like pulled alongside the car. I was like, pull over, pull over, pull over. And so they, they did. They pulled over. And kind of like, okay, get, get ready for this engagement. It's like, get out. It's like, hey, mate, like, what's up? You hit me. Like, no, I didn't hit you. You hit me is the response. And it just like blew my mind. It was like, what? Couldn't believe it. And they were like kind of aggressive, and they were like, I've got cameras all over inside my car. I was like, I don't know if that's true, but they're like, I've got video of it. I was like, cool, I'm calling the police. Let's get some judicial inquiry in here. So I called the cops, and I'm like, we'll see what's what. What's been done in the dark is going to be brought into the light. <laughs> they get in their car, and they drive away. <laughs> I got the license plate. It was, all good. it was all good. But that kind of posture of like, we'll see what's what is what the writer is talking about. He's saying what's done in the dark, what's hidden, what's ambiguous to us will be made clear. And what will endure is what is good, what is true, what is just. By God's hand at long last, new heavens, new earth, where righteousness dwell. And as sobering as that might be, as we consider our own lives, and there's a warning here. The primary point is not one related to fear, but related to hope, to sure expectation. 
How can the writer say with such confidence that this will happen? Because the fire is already here. The world is already ablaze with the presence and goodness of God. The light of the world has dawned in Jesus Christ, bursting through the static walls of the tomb in resurrection glory. And the church is already aflame in creation with the Spirit's presence. Like Samson's foxes in the field, their tails ablaze. What is written of here in this morning is the culmination of what already is happening. God's presence brought to completion in the earth. If you were to look at the Alamo Draft House in my neighborhood, it looks like it's totally in stasis. It looks like it could be that way forever, in neutral. But the reality is, right, you know this, in laboratories far away, in distribution centers across the earth, the process that will mean change is already underway. In the same way, we look upon the world, we look upon our lives, and perhaps we see stasis, nothing changing, no hope for the future. But the fiery goodness of God is already at work in the earth. And it will not be extinguished. No matter what happens, no matter how long we wait, his goodness and glory will spread until all the earth is consumed, suffused with his presence. And holiness, righteous justice are fully and finally at home. Think of the climactic lines of that carol, I heard the bells on Christmas Day. God is not dead, nor does he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail. With peace on earth, goodwill to men. In light of that then, God's patience, his fiery goodness, implications. In the language of our reading, what kind of people ought we to be? And the writer has a number of exhortations. Live lives of holiness and godliness. Make your way of life one marked with goodness, devotion to God's purposes. In secure expectation, make every effort to live as one who's been made spotless, without blame, at peace with him. Biblical scholar Ruth Ann Reese reflects on this idea of being at peace. She says, the people of God are to be found in peace. They can be confident of God's patience, of his saving intent. They can be confident of his return and the new world it promises. So they can live at peace, in all, peace embedded in that knowledge. Peace with one another and peace with their neighbors. Another scholar, Catherine Gonzalez, similarly suggests that the life to which we're called, holiness, blamelessness, godliness, and peace, is a life that reflects the nature of what is coming, reflects the nature of the future. This is what will be goodness and holiness, so you might as well get started now, today. And the writer here makes specific mention of Scripture, right? He, he names the writings of Paul as Scripture, this curious thing. And he makes this point, this call, that the people of God are not to distort them, but remain firm in their teaching. It's a point less about the difficulties, the challenges of biblical inter interpretation, and it's more about heart. Those who twist, who distort, keep company with the serpent of Genesis. 
who's always asking the question, did God really say? Not as this inquiry of good faith, but as a means of subversion. To remain firm is to remain committed to the conviction that God speaks. He speaks in a way that we can understand. And it's to receive Scripture as a word for us, the words of life of God, written for our learning as we prayed today in the Collect. Make every effort, the writer implores us. That is, devote yourself to this kind of life, firmly submitted to God's word, reading, marking, inwardly digesting, holy, godly, at peace with him. Make every effort. That is, with the same fervor that you devote to securing your material well-being, to securing a good future for your children, with the same discipline that you might develop skills for your career, with the same focus on your relationships, putting in the same resources you might commit to your physical well-being, put every day granted to you to patient and good use. People get ready, as that old song goes. There's a fire coming. The fire of God's goodness is at hand. This Advent and always be prepared. This, in many ways, is a passage that calls us to repentance, to amendment of life, to the changing of our lives, in line with the gospel, in line with God's call. There's one specific one concern or thought that I have for us, and that is that the call to repentance for us this week might be a call to turn from false ideas, false beliefs or convictions we have about God. As I mentioned earlier, patience is not a virtue that we readily name, I think, when it comes to God. One of the curious things as you look at the New Testament is the way in 1 John, in the letters to, uh, that John wrote, that God is described as love. God is love. You put that alongside a passage like 1 Corinthians 13, where there's this description of love. Patient, not delighting in evil, kind, rejoicing in the truth, not holding wrongs against one another. To put all those together, I wonder if a, a, a basic practice you might engage in this week as an act of repentance, of thinking again, is to reflect on 1 Corinthians 13 as a description of the character of God. God is patient. He is kind. He keeps, does not hold our wrongs against us. He does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. As a way of, of turning our hearts and our minds from false beliefs, false ideas about him. As a way of being renewed in our minds, growing in the knowledge of him. Just a suggestion for us this Advent season. Let me pray for us. Gracious and almighty God, in, in many ways, this passage is a sobering one. The challenge, the call to be prepared, to anticipate and look for your coming, your, your coming in goodness, in holiness. That is a threat to us. And we ask that your Holy Spirit would inspire in us lives that would produce fruit in keeping with repentance, lives of holiness and godliness. But I ask, too, that in your mercy, in your kindness, that your spirit would, 
would prompt in us an awareness of your character. It's better than we think. Would prompt in us remembrances of all that you've done for us in Jesus, in his death upon the cross, making us secure, putting us at peace with you, such that we might live lives now as people who've been made spotless, made blameless, made holy. Would you work in us this season, this day, and always? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.